Hi, this is Dr. Hughes. On this episode, we are going to be talking about the sexual response cycle in more detail, and specifically for women. Tomorrow we'll be discussing the sexual response cycle in greater amount of detail for for men. I do want to start out, though, today by just reminding all of the listeners, and there, to my surprise, there are way, way more listeners than I would have thought, especially at this point. So I'm, I'm just overwhelmed by the response of the, this community, members of the Churches of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and those that are interested, uh, members in improving sexual intimacy, either with, uh, within their relationship or as, as clinicians, that are working with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to help these individuals improve their sexual relationship and to become more of a uh, sex-positive people or owning the sex-positive aspects of um, uh, that, that exist in our culture. So to, to start out, we're going we're gonna to discuss desire, that being... Uh, we're going to keep it, try to try to sort of isolate these different phases of the sexual response cycle for women. Although uh, we're going to be talking about it in a linear fashion and that they are distinct and separate from one another, um, that's not really the case. The reason why I'm speaking about it in these terms is because it will be a lot easier to conceptualize uh, different physiological, endocrine, and... Um, and uh, psychological processes that take place during a sexual encounter. So, um, so you'll you'll hopefully you can you can see that when I talk about desire, that desire is not just present during the first phase, and then it it. Um, disappears and moves to arousal and then arousal uh, goes to resolution and desire is no longer a piece or component that's there. Um, So for example, for women, desire um, usually comes within the context of the overall uh, relationship. If there's a good, positive, healthy, um, happy relationship, if there's fondness and closeness in the relationship, usually desire grows there for for women, and um, and so it, um, it, it's not that that only exists at the beginning of the sexual encounter, and then that goes away as orgasm, uh, you know, as desire moves to arousal and then orgasm, and at the stage of orgasm, desire is no longer there. I mean, it could be. But most often, it's going to to still exist. So um, these stages, in some way, or phases, in some way, build upon each other. Uh, so desire stays uh, generally, and in a healthy encounter, stays with the the individual through throughout the entire sexual encounter. Same with uh, arousal, although it may not be there as much at the beginning. But it's a little bit easier to talk about these different phases if we break them up as separate. Uh, women are they're another good example of how these stages are not just um, a stepwise progression, one leading to the the next, um, because women don't have a refractory period of, as we've talked about, so they can potentially have multiple orgasms. Uh, a woman could, um, in theory, move up these different 
phases of the sexual response cycle, have an orgasm, then go back down to physiological arousal, then build desire and, and have arousal that accompanies it, have another orgasm, and then resolution. And if they wanted to and, and um, it was possible for this individual woman, she could start the whole thing all over again or move back a couple of steps. So it's not... Um, it's not a stepwise progression that can't, uh, that can't go back. It's not that these stages and phases are distinct and separate from each other. Um, it's a lot more, um, dynamic than that. The, the sexual response cycle for both men and women, uh, not just women because they don't have a refractory period, but it's, it's a lot more dynamic for, for men as well. Um, so today we'll begin with discussing desire. As I said before, desire exists within the context of the overall relationship, which is so vital, so necessary, and so, so important. There, my, my graduate chair, uh, who I still think of with a lot of fondness, um, he would always say that, and he wasn't the one that coined this, this, uh, this phrase, but that sex starts in the kitchen. And the idea behind that is that uh, sexual desire for women usually begins within the context of the relationship. Um, usually begins with closeness, with feeling that the other uh, partner, that the husband is thinking of the wife, cares about the wife, is actively engaged in her life. And the... the um, term is a little antiquated in that, um, you know, the kitchen may be, um, sex starts in discussions of the woman's experience during work. Um, you know, so she comes home from work, they have dinner together or as they have dinner as a family together and, um, the kids run off and play and the husband starts to talk to the, to the wife about what her day was like and what the meetings were like or what the case was that she was dealing with or her patients, what, you know, how, um, how that went meeting with, uh, um, with her clients or her patients and, um, you know, caring about her, connecting with her, um, and making bids for connection, showing that they, they're actively involved and engaged in, in things that, that matter to, to, uh, their spouse, to their wife. So sex starts in the kitchen. Isn't necessarily that, uh, the husband has to be doing the dishes. It could be that he is having meaningful conversations, helping out or engaging or making bids for connection and engagement in areas that matter uh, to, to the wife. And this is important for, for men as well. I mean, it's, it's highly in, important for both sexes, but um, typically you see this being a little bit more relevant for women. Um, in part because there's lots of reasons and I'm not going to cover all of them in this episode, but in part because women usually become sexual in relation to another person. Now, this isn't always the case, but a lot of times, and especially in our culture, um, women usually will, will wait to be sexual until there's another person, typically their, their partner or their spouse, um, maybe boyfriend or girlfriend, you know, they're crossing lines, uh, earlier on. Um, but men typically, and more often will become sexual in isolation of another. They'll become sexual, uh, alone, 
through masturbation or through uh, viewing pornography or a combination of those. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that that's right or okay. I'm just saying, uh, stating, uh, stating uh, what typically happens. So women usually will become uh, sexual in relation to another, um, which makes it so that they their sexual template um, is embedded with another present and within the context of uh, an over uh, in, within the context of a relationship, men usually become sexual in isolation of another, and so uh, they may yearn for, seek out sexual encounters, um, not necessarily because of the the closeness that they feel in the relationship. Now, um, another idea is that some men and some women might seek proximity, attachment, safety, security, feel, uh, you know, long for a feeling that they're okay within their relationship by means of, of sex. And so they might pursue sexual encounter with their spouse as a way to feel close. Um, oftentimes women will seek out, uh, or be accept or be responsive to, uh, sexuality or to sexual bids because they feel close and connected. And oftentimes men will seek out sexual intimacy to feel close and connected. So women, because they feel it, men to feel that. And, uh, um, I'm not saying that's okay or the way that it should be, but oftentimes you see that, and oftentimes in our culture you see that. Um, you, uh, let's see. Um, there was something more I wanted to say. Uh, oh, the, the other thing I, point I wanted to make about that is that um, men and women alike need to broaden the ways that they, um, they make bids for or um, find connection or closeness with their spouse. So oftentimes men will um, will only have one or two or uh, ways of of trying to connect and be vulnerable, trying to be intimate, trying to to bond or attach to their spouse or partner, and a lot of times that's through sexual intimacy or physical intimacy, and that's a fine way to bond and to connect and to fill attachment. But if that's the only way, or if that's typically the route or avenue that they take, then there, uh, then there begins to be a problem in their relationship. And women, oftentimes in our culture, will seek out um, emotional intimacy as the the only means, or uh, most often the means for closeness, connection, bonding, attachment, um, and uh, a bid for uh, for connection. And, but, but what gets missed is, I think that that also is, um, an issue if the only or, um, or the most typical way that they seek out connection, bonding, and intimacy is through emotional intimacy. That's, that's just the opposite side of the same coin. If men, it's only through sexual intimacy and women, it's only emotional intimacy. Well, we have the same problem, but just a different means to get there. And so men and women alike need to broaden their ways of, of, of bonding, connecting with one another. All right, let's see. 
Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about sexual desire for women is that this can vary from, from woman to woman and from time to time. Um, but uh, oftentimes this sexual desire builds uh, more than uh, mere moments. For men, oftentimes sexual desire builds quickly and moves quickly from desire to arousal. But for women, what happens sometimes is that desire might build from earlier on in that day or from the day before or from the week before and this di- desire builds and mounts and um and and so it's important to take that into account um and to be purposeful about uh bonding connecting and and um having an overall health, um, healthy and positive emotional connection in your relationship, and not just for sexual intimacy, um, but just because you want that with the other, you want that with your, your spouse. Uh, there, there was once a, a researcher that said that sexual, um, a, a, a sexual encounter begins at the end of the prior sexual encounter. And I think that's really well said. So a sexual encounter, a new sexual encounter, begins at the end of the prior sexual encounter. So after uh, a husband and wife are sexual with each other, and let's say, uh, you know, they that encounter is concluded, now begins the foreplay, the desire-building phase, the arousal-building phase for this this next or subsequent sexual encounter. And if we keep that in, in mind, um, and not just as a way to have more sexual intimacy with our spouse, um, but because that will improve or augment or make better our sexual relationship with our spouse to be one, a relationship that we want, um, one, uh, one that's uh, of a caliber that we're looking for and, and striving for, um, then we best, um, start to think about it in those terms and in, in that way. All right, let's see. All right, I'm going to move on. Um, let's, let's move on to sexual arousal or excitement phase. In, um, in women. So I mentioned in previous podcasts that the clitoris is similar in, in its makeup to the, the penis in that it's made of erectile tissue. So with vasocongestion or blood flow that happens during uh, the arousal phase, um, the clitoris becomes, um, that erectile tissue actually makes it become erect. And what happens as it fills with blood, as it has this vasocongestion, is there's a clitoral hood or a covering, which is similar to the foreskin of, the, of a man's penis uh, that, that covers the, the head of the man's penis, um, it, uh, where, it's not, where the man is not circumcised. Um, is the the clitoris as it fills with blood, it increases sensitivity, um, and, and um, it will it will protrude as it's being enlarged. It will protrude from the clitoral hood. Oftentimes, women vary from woman to woman, but typically it will protrude and make it so that it's more likely or more apt to be stimulated um, or aroused. Uh, which builds de- builds desire also and um, builds to the the um, 
the the plateau phase and then uh, potentially to, to orgasm. Um, but what also happens uh, around the clitoris is that the labia majora, the labia minora, the, the, the vulva fills with and engorges with, um, with blood as well. There's vasocongestion um, that's there as well, and it increases the... Uh, the sensitivity and uh, the arousal that the woman feels. Um, one one quick statement about the clitoris um, that's fascinating is that the the clitoris is actually what what you can see of the clitoris is about one tenth of the actual size of the clitoris. It's only one tenth of that actual size. So a lot of people think that the clitoris is really small, and what you see of the clitoris, it is really really small in comparison to the the male penis but if that's only one tenth then the clitoris is actually quite large and the the remainder of the clitoris um, can be stimulated internally through the the woman's uh, vaginal canal um, if one were to do a come hither motion um, it's on like the the front side or the the belly side of um, of the vaginal canal and the the clitoris can be stimulated that way or by the the penis through the the vagina if it's uh being if it's pushing against the outer wall of the vaginal canal it can stimulate and it's not directly stimulating it like uh one could if they were stimulating the clitoris but or the uh, the external part of the clitoris but the clitoris can be stimulated through tissue um that's separating the internal part of the clitoris uh, from the vaginal opening. Um, so it can it can be stimulated through the tissue. So it's still very arousing, um, but less direct than the external um, or more well-known part of the clitoris. So, okay, so we're going to go back to the vasocongestion, the blood flow. Um, we... We call this uh, blood flowing to these different areas of the body during arousal, um, uh, sexual flush. There's pink, uh, pinkish spots can occur, um, and uh, like a darkening of, of the clitoris can take place, um, or often takes place in the woman during the arousal phase. Um, this is where one would experience a lot more vaginal lubrication Every woman's different, though. So some women experience more lubrication than other women do, depending on the, the time of the month or the, the menstrual cycle. There may be more or less lubrication. It may change in consistency. It may change in consi- um, in, uh, in in frequency or, or amount that is dispelled. Um, but uh, during this phase, there's a lot of, uh, of lubrication that can occur. Um, let's see. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move to. Um, oh, I wanted to talk about the the uterus. So what happens internally for the woman is uh, during the arousal phases, the uterus actually um, pulls up and away from the vagina, and the cervix also pulls up from from the, the vagina. So the the cervix pulls up from the vagina. Um, this, as this happens, the vagina actually um, in, uh, gets larger. So um, the inner two-thirds of the vag- vagina actually lengthens 
and distends. It lengthens and distends. So I've uh, heard it described the vaginal canal as a as a, uh, similar to like an umbrella, and with sexual arousal, the umbrella or the vaginal canal opens up. It also lengthens, which uh, I guess. The, you can have a an umbrella that lengthens and then you open it and so lengthens and, and distends or opens up, which makes it a lot easier for, for intercourse. So women that, that have difficult time feeling uh, aroused during intercourse or during sexual activity may find it actually pretty uncomfortable or not pleasing at all um, or, or even painful if they can't experience arousal because they're not ha- they don't have um, vasocongestion or blood flow that makes uh, the clitoris and the vulva more um, easily stimulated and more um, uh, touch more pleasurable. They don't have lubrication or far less lubrication that makes the penis glide through the vaginal canal um, a lot much easier. Uh, the clitoris is not protruding making it more stimulating and arousing, and they don't have the, the vaginal canal lengthening and distending, making it easier to accommodate the penis. So um, this phase, for a lot of women, it varies how long it lasts, but um, 15 seconds to 30 minutes, um, anywhere in there is, is pretty typical or pretty normative for, for a woman. So 15 seconds during the arousal phase. So not all women take a long time during the arousal phase to move to plateau and orgasm. Um, but, um, but there are plenty of women that, that do um, take longer. And so anywhere in that period of time, which you, do, you don't hear that uh, um, or read that or um, hear people talking about, oh, it's pretty typical to take 30 minutes during uh, once a woman is aroused. I mean, Media would media and pornography would have you believe that there's something wrong with the woman that takes that long, but that's that's normative. That's a normative uh, um, experience for a woman. So during the plateau phase, where we're going to move on, this plateau phase, um, we'll we'll go through this a little bit more quickly. It's also called the foreplay or the love play stage. Um, basically, what's happening during the arousal phase happens in this phase, but um, it, it just is. Um, it, it's it's maybe just a little bit more highlighted or um, capitalized, or just to a greater degree or extent. The the uterus, for instance, continues to elevate. The vaginal barrel barrel expands even more. Um, the vagina continues to have lubrication, the labia continues to increase in size, muscular tension. Um, the clitoris, though, during this plateau phase actually retracts, and it's believed that it retracts because there's so much uh, physiological arousal and stimulation, and there are lots of nerve endings, twice as many on the, the head of the clitoris, uh, the glands clitoris, than the, than the glands penis or the head of the penis. And so it actually um, kind of retracts and um, is sheltered a little bit by the clitoral hood. This stage can be achieved and lost and regained several times, which is all normal, all part of a typical normative sexual response cycle for a woman. In fact, desire can wax and wane, arousal can wax and wane, plateau can wax and wane, um, and those are all, that's all normal. 
men, and I think I've said this before, just to kind of compare though, um, men, men are kind of similar. Men gain and lose an erection an average of three times during a 45-minute sexual encounter. But no one in the locker room is going to talk about that. Uh, no one in the, on the golf course is going to talk about that, but that's, that's the case. Um, but if, if a woman is, and man is to see that this is normal, then no one's going to freak out no one's going to get anxious. No one's going to think, oh my goodness, am I going to gain that arousal back? Am I going to find my desire? Am I going to get to this that heightened sense of physiological arousal again? They're just going to enjoy the ride a lot more, a lot easier. They'll, they'll just think instead, oh, this is the point where it's dipping back down. I can't wait till it starts to elevate again. That's going to be so much fun to gain that arousal again. Rather, what is often thought is, oh no, it's going away. Will I ever get it back? Shoot, I worked so hard for that. And all of those thoughts, that whole narrative takes the uh, sexual encounter and, and makes it just come crashing down. And oftentimes couples leave feeling very um, distraught and upset and frustrated. So we need to shift that narrative. Um, the The plateau phase ends when the woman reaches the moment of orgasmic inevitability, um, the state in which no matter what happens, if everything were to stop, movement were to stop, clitoral stimulation were to stop, uh, oral stimulation, penetration were to stop, whatever it may be, the orgasm is still going to happen. And that's, that's the end of the, the plateau phase for the woman. During the orgasm phase, what happens is there's involuntary muscle contractions. Um, the vagina orgasmic platform or outer um, third of the vagina uh, has swelling, has tightening. The uterus, uterus contracts, and it's it's actually really, really similar to what happens during labor. And that's why if you're somebody that's uh, trying to go into to labor earlier or um, or you're, you've, you've maybe had children before. And so you've read about how do I induce labor? Why you, you would find that orgasm helps to induce labor is because it's a similar process in terms of what happens to their uterus, the contracting of the, the uterus that happens during, during labor. Um, so, uh, muscles in other parts of the body, like the feet start contracting, large muscle groups, um, have, uh, might contract. Um, the woman's body is flooded with endorphins and these are, these are hormones from the endocrine system that help her to feel happiness or elation. Oxytocin is released at, at high levels, which is the cuddle hormone or the bonding hormone. Um, it's released in other ways too, but to, to the extent that it's released during orgasm is, uh, is, is, uh, small in relation, uh, to, to, to how it's released during orgasm. It's so much higher, so much greater. Interestingly, though, oxytocin is released, um, during orgasm if somebody were to masturbate. So let's say if a woman's masturbating to pornography, she's going to have oxytocin that's released, um, similar to how it's released during, um, intercourse or a sexual encounter with another person, with a spouse, let's say. But, it's released in higher doses 
with a partner or a spouse than if a woman were to masturbate alone while viewing pornography or just masturbate. It, It would be released in a lower dose alone than with somebody else. Let's see. Um... It's important to note that mo- that most women, the large majority of women, are going to require direct clitoral stimulation of some form in order to reach an orgasm. Uh, some women are are able to reach that without, but uh, most of them are going to need um, clitoral stimulation. Uh, but that that makes sense. That's like saying that a man can reach an orgasm with very little or infrequent or almost no uh, penile stimulation. Oh, I mean that that's crazy to, to, to think that that would be the case. Um, the, the, the degree or the intensity of a woman's orgasm varies from woman to woman, from orgasm to orgasm, and there are so many different types of orgasms. I've known women that, um, have, uh, uh, kind of label or name the type of orgasm that they have. This one, uh, fits in this category. This one fits in this other category. Um, and they just enjoy the variation that's there, uh, which is a positive narrative versus thinking, oh, it wasn't as good as this other one because this other one was X, Y, and Z, and I've for some reason deemed that more important or better. So um, just seeing that there's variation um, can can make it a lot more satisfactory and a lot more enjoyable. Interestingly, a lot of men actually say uh, that they don't experience much variation in their type of, of orgasm. So I think I, I personally feel like women actually have a lot more sexual potential than men, although in the world, and in our culture, we don't really see it, we don't talk about it that way, culturally. Uh, Like I've said, women can have multiple orgasms during each sexual encounter without a refractory period. Uh, Last thing, and then then we'll be done with this episode for today, I want to talk about the resolution phase. Um, And I also want to talk about the the afterplay that that should ensue. Um, During the resolution phase, the blood cells dilate, and that's to to drain the the pelvic re- region. There's a lot of uh, a, a big loss of muscle tension, a sense of increased relaxation. The vagina returns to normal. The uterus drops back down. Uh, so the, the the vagina actually, you know, it's if it was that umbrella, kind of closes back up, um, pulls back back up because it distended. Uh, the uterus drops back down to its normal position. The cervix opens, and and this is fascinating. I, I love this part. The cervix actually dips. It, it opens up, and it drops into the seminal pool for about 20 to 30 minutes after orgasm. And this is like at the end of the vaginal barrel, the vag- or the, the vaginal canal, um, where it's distended, and that's to collect semen um, for... for uh, uh, for the woman to get pregnant, and the the cervix drops opens and drops down into to uh, that seminal pool that's at the the back or the end of the vaginal canal that's dis- distended, uh, so that she can get pregnant. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, the la- last thing I wanted to talk about the the afterplay. Everyone misses this. This is so important. Um, and it's kind of the beginnings or the makings of the next sexual encounter, as well as the conclusion of this prior sexual encounter. It is so vital and important for the couple to have afterplay rituals, cuddling, talking, massaging, um, 
uh, reminiscing about their sexual encounter that just took place, um, that type of thing. They, they, they need that. That's important. Rather than just doing cleanup and going to bed or going back to everyday life. It's really important for the couple to have those after-play rituals, which will help to make it feel connecting and bonding um, and, um, and, and uh, personal rather than just um, an objectification or just a sexual release. Not that there's anything wrong with just, just a sexual release, but it's important to feel um, this compassion and this love and this caring um, for, for each other. Um, I lied. The, the last thing I want to say, and then we'll be done for today, um, is that um, as, as men and women in their, their marital relationships are embarking on these sexual encounters, the sexual activity, we're, we're taught in the church that, that this is a place where we can become like God. God needs to be present in our sexual relationship. And I hear oftentimes uh, couples wondering, what does that mean? And I've, I've explained it in some, um, in some length before, but there was a part that I wanted to add that I haven't been able to cover yet. And I feel like this is as good of a place as any. And that's that as we are sexual with our spouse, we can become or, or we get we gain closeness to God in how we act and treat our spouse or partner in the compassion, in the caring, in the concern for them, in the pleasure uh, we, we experience in, in um, their presence. We become like God and um, as, as we embody um, godly characteristics in, in our intimate, sexual encounters with our spouse, um, done, done in the right spirit, in the, in the right way, um, where we're, where, where we're, uh, we care about them and we value them and respect them. And that could be highly erotic. That doesn't have to be, you know, quiet and, and, um, and mild. Um, that could be highly erotic, but in those encounters that we have with our spouse, we embody characteristics that are godly and we become like God and we gain closeness to God as we become like God in those sexual encounters that we have with our, with our spouse. And that is yet another way that we bring him into our, our relationship and specifically into our sexual relationship. That's it for me today. This is uh, just a therapist sitting in an armchair talking about sex. Talk to you tomorrow.